After a devastating tragedy, part of the healing process comes from talking about it. But what happens when you have nowhere to turn? Or if no one even knows you're there? Today, we're sharing stories about the Ishinomaki ghost sightings. Welcome to Shadowland, everybody. Welcome. This is a podcast that shines a spotlight on stories of the supernatural, mysterious, eerie, and unexplained. Stuff like NDEs. Astral projection. People who marry ghost pirates. Remote seeing. People who divorce ghost pirates. Powers of the mind. Alien bases on the moon. Time travel. Trolls. Black holes. Haunted dolls. Interdimensional rock seals. <laughs> Remote viewing. Dogmen. All that stuff. All that stuff and more. Lots more. I'm Christina Callery. And I'm Seth Jablon. And today we're sharing stories about the Ashinomaki ghost sightings. Actually, you're sharing the stories. I'm, yes, that's right. So, um, yeah, this is a really interesting one. Um, you know, I had, I've been kind of wanting to do it for a while since uh, they actually did a, there was a Netflix, um, was it Unsolved Mysteries or something? They, they covered it and there was also a book about it um, where this guy went and sort of documented all these ghost sightings and then sort of stories around this great tragedy. Um, Is this the the most recent Unsolved Mysteries? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I gotta yeah. Check there was that an out. episode on, and that one covered like some specific stories, but there was sort of a larger story to the to the whole thing. But um, but yeah. So, um, I guess uh, yeah. If, if unless um, there's something else you want to talk about, you want to just jump right into it. No, let's get into it. Okay. Right, I'm cool. excited. All right. Cool. So, um, you know, just to like put us into the picture, I want to like go all the way back to 2011 when all of this began, just to give a fuller picture of all the surrounding events, because it sort of fits in this place in history. Um, and, and even though this is like this kind of great tragedy, it was sort of, you know, overshadowed by a larger one. Um, okay. So in March, 2011, one of the most devastating earthquakes ever shook the Tohoku region of Japan. This was the most powerful earthquake ever recorded in Japan and the fourth, fourth most powerful earthquake in the world since modern record keeping began. Oh my God. So I this is idea. It was... absolutely massive, right? Yeah. It was a magnitude 9.09.1, right? So I, I guess it goes up to 10. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like you usually hear the, the, these massive ones around like seven or eight or something. So I don't even know if I've ever even heard one that big. Um, it was categorized as an undersea mega thrust. <laughs> it's like, wow. I guess the like technical term. Um, yeah, earthquake that um, it originated in the Pacific Ocean, about forty-five miles east of the um, Oshika uh, Peninsula. So the repercussions of this were enormous. Right, there was like it caused all sorts of disaster. Uh, natural disasters that led to man-made disasters, um, such as um, the Fukushima uh, nuclear disaster. 
primarily the meltdowns of three of its reactors, which I think we, a lot of us remember. I'm sure you remember that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah there was like the fallout like kind of came as, as far as California. So, you know, what a lot of us don't remember or, or were perhaps not so present to, um, no doubt overshadowed by this this massive nuclear disaster, was that the earthquake caused several tsunamis, um, some of them up to 30 feet high, that traveled inland up to three miles from the coast, right? And so 30 feet doesn't sound that huge, you know, like there's like big, big wave surfers out there trying to get like 60 footers, dude, you know, but it's like, you know, you think about that and these things are moving, it's like a wall, right? Yeah, it's like a 30 it's like foot. like the force, right? Yeah, it's the force and it's the speed and it's the reach. Like again, oh, three so miles terrifying. from one context doesn't sound that far, but just imagine three miles in from like New York City, right? Like most of New York City would be underwater, right? Like three miles in inland. So, you know, it's it's pretty far. And this thing came in very fast. There was little warning, pretty much no warning, right? Um, so the disaster in totality claimed over 18,000 lives throughout the coastal Tohoku region. Um, and this included uh, the seaside town of Ashinomaki. So Ashinomaki, uh, you know, approximately um, about half, 46% of the city was inundated. Um, it, it basically just like wiped out the entire city. Well, not entire, but like, you know, about half of it, I guess, like uh, a large portion of it, um, causing, you know, as of June 17th, the last sort of recorded date that I found was some from 2011, um, was 3,097 deaths confirmed, which I assume means they've like found a body or something like that, um, with 2,700. 2770 2770 unaccounted for right so that was just they couldn't confirm people right. gone oh, God. people gone forever so, so so horrible yeah so this is like 5000 people 6000 almost 6000 people in this town just gone like in a, in a, in the flash of an eye wow. uh in addition to that how, how big is the town um you mean population wise? Yeah, I'm just wondering. I don't know the total them. size, but um, mm -hmm. I have here that uh, approximately 29,000 residents lost their homes. Oh, so, you know, if if 46% of the city was, you know, completely covered in water, um, so I'd imagine like twice that and something like that. So this is a massive, massive catastrophe, right? And at a scale that it's really, truly hard to imagine, right? When we talk a lot about, you know, these, um, you know, a lot of, uh, um, you know, disasters and things like that that have happened uh, in the West, right? The, the, the number, you know, 6,000, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 6,000, these are huge numbers, right? And, and you know, a lot of this, again, was, was um, overshadowed by the nuclear disaster. Everyone was worried, right? All eyes were on that nuclear disaster. Yet in the meantime, thousands and thousands of people had lost their lives. People had lost loved ones, homes, entire towns had been washed away, right? But we just, I wasn't present to it. I mean, maybe other people out there were, but I'm, I'm certainly certain in Japan they were, but I think worldwide, we certainly would be more familiar, I think, with this event if that hadn't been part of it, right? Yeah, so, I remember 
you know, seeing some coverage of it and some videos and photos and it was just, yeah. Yeah. just So horrible. Yeah. So, um, in the wake of it, um, in the long shadow of grief, people started having experiences. Um, and so that leads us to the sightings. Um, it often involved water on a rainy night or after a rain when puddles spotted the streets, people started reporting that neighbors, neighbors who had died in the tsunami, were appearing at their houses and coming and sitting in puddles of water. So these were what a lot of people saw were mainly um, ghosts of people who had died in the, in the tsunami. Uh, so, some of them were friends, family. Some of them were strangers. Um, and, and everyone was seeing them. It wasn't just restricted to people who had lost someone um, you know, there were, there were a lot of, there were a lot of occurrences, uh, and, and some people, you know, um, just had sort of strange, sometimes disturbing, sometimes comforting dreams about their lost loved ones, right? Like not mm-hmm. an uncommon occurrence, uh, for sure, but you know, this is like an entire town having these experiences all well, at once. Did you get a sense when you were reading through the stories that, um, people were, I mean, were they aware that that these were spirits or did sometimes they mistake it for their neighbor and not realize they were dead or? Um, That that one I don't really remember, but I think a lot of the tone of the stories, a lot of the the people they talked to in that Netflix special and a lot of the the stories that um, this guy sort of collected uh, over a few years... um, was that you know it was it was a little bit more i mean like you know the japanese have a slightly different or not slightly quite a different relationship to death than than we do right just the east versus the west has a quite different relationship right we tend to uh bury it away we tend to hide it away uh we tend to right. see it as sort of scary the the, the just the concept of a ghost is right. categorized and, and as, it and yeah well, just that we're frightened of it, whereas, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Japanese have, you know, in a, you know, at one time and, and to, to, to some degree still do have a, you know, I guess you could call it religion, you know, based off of their ancestors, right? They have a relationship uh, um, to their ancestors, you know, after they pass. It's it's something they're they're much more connected to, right? We, you know, maybe we have a family tree, but we don't, you know, remember our ancestors in the same way. And so they have, you know, because of that, they have a different perspective on death and on, um, you know, on ghosts and things like that. And so for some of these, some of these experiences, I think were troubling and and I'll read some of them, but a lot of them were not, they were just like, okay, this is, um, this is something that's happening. This is part of life. You know, death is part of life. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think there was clearly people grieving who had lost someone, but I think people who saw ghosts out there were like, Oh, it's a ghost. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like they were like conflicted about the fact whether or not it was a ghost. I think people were more just sort of like, how do I deal with this? How do I process this? There's not really a great setup for me to process this type of situation. Right. So, um, so yeah, so let me find where I was here. So yeah, I mean, a lot of people saw, um, you know, people they had lost, but a lot of people also saw specters on the beach, right? They saw them in puddles. Um, 
you know, after, after a rain, like it always like kind of involved water somehow. Right. Um, which is sort of obvious, right? Like, uh, I don't know if these would, you know, be categorized as sort of water ghosts or anything, but like, clearly this happened in, you know, a lot of these people probably drowned to some degree or, you know, like, you know, I don't know how you die when you're swept right. in a tsunami, but, um, certainly it involved water. Um, well, I know there's also like, uh, you know, some sense, you know, that I've heard this and I, I know my mom believed this, that, <laughs> there that there there can be like heightened spiritual activity around water whether it's bodies of water oh, or water is almost like a conduit, conduit in a way yeah that's really interesting yeah i guess we like i feel like we've touched on that and like the nature of water on this show of like becoming charged with things right like lakes where people have drowned and things like that have have right. this way of um, and what is it? And that? it's often it's often a part of like religious ceremonies and stuff. Yeah, too. right. But I think some people think religious even like psychic powers or you know mediumship and all of that. Um, yeah, we did that. That episode where we talked about Damien Eccles, he would like, what would he do? He would like charge water with like the power of the moon or something like that. But it was like he put spells in it and stuff like that. Um, but anyways, like either way, it's like not hard to imagine people having these experiences you know, a lot to do with water. So when, when man reported, um, the, the author, I couldn't find it here a second ago, but, um, uh, let me find, I just lost it again. Um, uh, the author, I think he was like a English guy or something. I can't find it again. Uh, basically one person re- reported to him that, um, they would see, he hated going out because he would see people's eyes staring back at him from puddles in the street. So like that's you know whatever your relationship is to, no matter how all embracing um, your relationship to death is, that's going to be creepy. Right, absolutely. <laughs> right. So almost like a reflection in the puddle. Yeah, right. Or like right. as if it's within the the water. Right, but like a puddle, like you'd have to like I imagine you're not standing directly over it, so you're like it's almost like a window or something, right? Like. Mm. To see your own eyes in water, you'd have to be perpendicular. Anything in a reflection is kind of scary. Mirrors, a window at night. Yeah. You see something and and it might be a reflection or maybe it's not. Right, right. Uh, Richard Lloyd Perry, he wrote The the Ghosts of the Tsunami. That's what I was trying to find here. Okay. Um, So, you know, and, and some of these, a lot of these occurrences were innocuous. Some of them were very fleeting. Um, you know, people would see a shadow in a window or a doorway out of the corner of their eyes. Um, and other times, you know, it was much more personal. Um, one person said they saw their mother's ghost appear immediately after her house was washed away by the tsunami. So it was like the house took, you know, the, the water basically took her house and, and ostensibly her away. And then she like appeared in front of him. Um, did did this person know that it had happened? I think or so. By the know? way that I don't know that, but I, okay. I think by the way it was it was described was that you know, I think a lot of people are witnessing this stuff firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably the most common reports, however, uh, come from the experiences of cab drivers. Um. So, oh, I think I've heard of this. Yeah, before. yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was like, this was a big part of the that Netflix show, which is like, 
you know, on a rainy night, you know, you're dry, the cab driver's driving down the street, um, would pick somebody up, they'd get in the car and ask to go somewhere. And sometimes they wouldn't quite know where they're going um, or they would ask to go to a part of town that, that didn't exist anymore, right? Some parts of town, you know, were washed away. So they would ask to go to a district that didn't exist anymore and the cabbie would start driving them there. And um, well, anyways, I'll, t- I'll tell you, th- that's a bit of a composite, but um, and a lot of times, you know, that once the cabbie started to understand what was happening, they would take them there. A lot of them would pay for the, the fare uh, and take them where, to their, where they were going. Some would vanish in the middle of the ride. Um, others would, uh, you know, go to their destination and get out and disappear. Um, so the cabbies basically played along with them. You know, so saw they were aware over... that, that these are ghosts and they're still. Yeah, they're some still of them not certainly not it. at first, right? right? But then they get the picture pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um and so then, you know, they just started taking them where they wanted to go. Wow. Yeah. So, um, okay. So um, let me tell you about um, Yuka Kudo. Uh, he was a, a graduate student at Tohoku um, Gakin, Gakin University. In um, uh, 2016, he traveled to Ishinomaki to document what was going on. Um, he interviewed a bunch of cab drivers, um, and you know, there was, there was a lot of different types of stories. Um, but, but, uh, several of them told him stories that were like very similar about, uh, phantom riders who disappeared once they, once they reached their destination. Um, another, uh, um, occurrence was, uh, a fire station repeatedly received calls, um, to to get help at houses that had been destroyed by the tsunami. So, Whoa. yeah, so they would get a call and the, the fire crew would go there um, and and then or they would realize ahead of time that it wasn't there anymore. Oh, my uh, God. So and, actual calls, like 911 yeah, yeah, they would type get calls. Like, well, I don't know what, yeah, what type of phone service they hear a voice and, and they someone there, is like, please come, please come. Oh, my God. And they would be like, oh, wait, but that, that place doesn't exist. So they started going to and um, praying for them. They would, the, the fire crew would travel there, uh, you know, and um, every time they got a call and they would pray for those people. And, and they said once they started doing that, a lot of the phone calls stopped. Um, wow. Yeah. So in another city, so, the, the, you know, there was a, it wasn't just Ashinomaki, by the way, right? Like, we're sort of focusing in on this sort of area, but, you know, there's all these little towns, or bigger and smaller towns. You know, this is coastal Japan and a bit inland as well. So it's a pretty large area. So, so different places, they were all having, like, kind of similar experiences um, for a long time before I think anyone really started connecting the dots. Um, so in another city... Uh, a cab driver picked up what what they described as a, a, a sad looking man, um, and this is one of the cases where you know he asked to go to uh, an area that the cab driver knew had been destroyed, um, but he's like, okay, I guess I'll take him there, and so he starts driving him there, and he's maybe a little confused. I don't think he really realizes the you know what's going on yet. Um, but then on his way there, he looks back and realizes 
the um the the man was no longer sitting in the back seat so again respect out of respect he drives to the destination uh pulls up in front of the house that he you know and he said he got got to this house and it was you know um just ruined foundations uh and he opens the door to let the passenger out and then goes on his way so like i said a lot of the you know people's a lot of the people in this town the reaction to this was not oh my god freak out like scared uh they were reverent uh, right. of these experiences and honored them right. um which i loved yeah um, i do too that's uh it seems very unexpected i feel yeah. like <laughs> yeah I think i'm not it does sure i have us, it but... <laughs> in me to, to do that <laughs> yeah, i'm yeah. pretty scared <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know i feel like i mean we can talk about this more but mm-hmm. i don't know i i feel like a lot of what we um are afraid of about ghosts and things like that have to do with stories and movies and i don't know how much of a natural response that is right like Mm -hmm. you know i feel like we're pumped up full of these horror stories right? right literally um but if we were raised a little differently or didn't have that type of influence i wonder how natural this would feel right like how, I mean, I mean, I know we find some stories in here about like ghosts causing problems, trying to hurt people, and things like that. But those really do tend to be the rare ones, at least that I've read. I don't know if you agree with that, but they tend to be fairly benign, right? These encounters, and so the fact that we're so scared of them, I don't know. Yeah, well, I think yeah, especially like when people have passed away, um, you know, in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath. I think you and I have talked about that before. You know, where it tends to be, it's for whatever reason. Uh, maybe there's, you know, they're still on this plane for a period of days or so, right, and right. then they pass on. But um, there tend to be more experiences like this. I think if it were someone I knew who passed away, I would, mm-hmm. I, it would be a completely different thing. Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't be scared. I would actually, I would love that. Yeah, and I think these people are also having. What's interesting about this is it's not usual for large groups of people to have a common experience, right? We just went through one and or are going through one still (laughs) right where literally the entire world has had a common experience together that's pretty rare right when you think about it usually it's like not the case and so you know they're in a city where people have had this common it shaped their lives right they all have the same experience they're all dealing with it and so i I imagine that lends a certain kinship to the entire thing, right? These aren't random ghosts showing up. They understand pretty quickly what's happening here. And I think that probably changes their perspective. That's a good point. And I think also just like this collective sense of grief that everybody's going through. Right. Right. They're all going through it together. So they're more open to it and, Totally. And a lot of them are having a hard time processing it, right? Including, yeah. <laughs> including the ghosts. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of them seem to be confused about what's happened. You know, this again, this happened in like minutes, right? Like this is like, I mean, I don't know exactly the amount of time from the earthquake to the tsunami, but certainly not enough time for people to even really process what was happening. Right. There was a lot of people still there. I don't know, even know how many people even tried to get out or did get out of the city like i just don't even know what you do it just happens so fast right so that idea of like you know some people just not even really 
understanding what happened causing this sort of like echo or some yeah some people not knowing to go into the light or or just getting confused about where they are and just sticking around right so one one of the cab drivers actually told talked about um a young woman who got into the car uh and um again asked to be taken to a now empty area um this was the Min- minahama Myanmar. Okay, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna butcher it. A district that was empty. <laughs> um, and so the the cab driver's like, "Is this? Are you sure?" And she said quietly to him, "Have I died?" And when he turned around, the back seat was empty. Oh my goodness. So I th- I think that that was like, um, I don't know if it was a common occurrence, but that was that was not from what I remember reading through. There's a lot of them. Um, you know, that type of experience happened more than once, right? Of them just not really understanding, you know, a lot of these ghosts, just not understanding what happened, right? Like they're confused. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine, you know, with that many people in that amount of time, some people probably actually didn't know what happened. There could have been people taking naps. Oh, absolutely. Right? It happened right that quickly it. and it's just like... Yes, yeah, slept right through it, right? Mm-hmm. So... So you, just all of a sudden you're dead in this, you know, and you're looking down and it's not even like you're looking down at your body. You're looking down at like rushing water and, you know, debris going by. Yeah, you don't even know watching. what the fuck just happened and, and it's super confusing. So, um, but they're not all that sort of, you know, uh, so another story um, involves a woman, um, you know, she talks about when she went to a, um, a bathhouse there. Um, when she finished, she went to go put her, her boots on and she found a white flower inside one of them. And then shortly after, I think a couple weeks later, when she's at her father's funeral, she sees the same white flower um, had been mysteriously placed on top of his coffin. So, you know, a number of their occurrences were like this, too. They were just these little, you know, uh, um, interactions, these little mysterious uh, um, occurrences that happened with people and their loved ones. And and so some of them were sweet. You know, it wasn't all just like, you know, the sort of sad confuse, confusion. Um, so, uh, but some of them were, were disturbing, too. Um but uh, another one uh, was a, a refugee um, in a, it was actually, sorry, it was in a refugee community uh, in Onagawa. Uh, uh, and an old neighbor of these peoples um, would appear in their living rooms of these sort of temporary houses they had and would sit down for a cup of tea um, <laughs> when they were having tea. Um, and they said that no one had the heart to tell her that she was dead. So she would sit down, have the tea, and leave. Um, and they said when she left, the seat was wet with seawater. Oh, my goodness. So basically, she'd just show up, and she was able to drink the tea? I don't know if she was, like, picking up a physical cup but I, or going through the motions. I don't know. But she would wow. sit down. Yeah, for, you know, maybe they served her. I mean, that's certainly not an odd thing. Like, people serve dead people food and drink all yeah. the time mm-hmm. i don't think i don't know how much we do it anymore but um that's a pretty common thing to do so uh but yeah like 
<laughs> my favorite part of that story is no one, no one had the heart to tell her she was dead. That's very sweet, right? It they is. just, yeah. you know, embraced her, and you know, and then then when she left, they're like, oh, look, sea water, <laughs> right? Like, I have to feel like some of that openness, that matter of factness, is actually what engendered some of these occurrences, right? Not this fighting and pushing away, but again, a lot of um, people it's interesting. didn't like the emotional openness is there and, and there aren't any blocks in the I way, think, like the fear. Yeah, I think a men, I would more say like a mental openness because a lot of them did have t- a hard time processing their emotions. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like it was more a mental like openness, like they were like not resistant to the idea of it all. But I think a lot of people had a hard time with their feelings about it, not not knowing how to process them. And so, you know, everyone's having these stories. Nobody really knows how many other people are having these stories. I mean, people are talking within the town, but a lot of them, they don't really know how to process it. So that's when um, uh, people started showing up at the doorstep of Reverend Kaneda. So uh, Reverend uh, uh, Kaneda was a priest at the um, local, actually he was chief priest at the um local Zen temple um, in the inland town of Kurahara. So many of these people came to him not knowing how to process their experiences or their grief, right? Um, So they sort of just came to him and started talking to him. Um, And, um, you know, he said a lot of them felt like it was selfish for them to cry. (laughs) So a lot of them, like, weren't even crying about it. There was a lot of, like, grief in this town, but nobody was, like sobbing and like there wasn't this like outpouring it was almost like everyone was sort of stunned and didn't really know you know like they were maybe they a lot of them probably had um what what do they call it what's the syndrome um survivor's guilt or whatever oh yeah right like why did we survive ptsd certainly ptsd survivor's guilt right survivor's guilt and on top of all this they're having these fairly extraordinary experiences right like they're they're seeing ghosts they're seeing ghosts sometimes of their loved ones and and some of these interactions are certainly welcome and and sweet and all that but some of them you know probably are disturbing because you know again it's like the grieving process it's long and when people are showing up you know for some people this may be a help for some people it, it might not be you know it may add another dimension for them to deal with so so they start coming to this priest who you know for himself he sort of you know sees um you know maybe a gap in uh, um you know maybe some of the modern buddhist teachings or the the ones that he's sort of uh, um you know armed with so he just sort of throws it all out and is like, I'm just going to deal with these people directly. I'm going to talk to them on the level. I'm not going to come from, you know, any specific philosophy on this. I'm just going to deal with this as I see it, right? As it's presenting itself to me. And so he embraces them. He embraces his experiences. He doesn't try to contextualize anything for them. He just tries to work directly with these people and and just talk with them. And this approach really helps. It really helps a lot of the people. Um, And, you know, as, as his reputation for this grows, 
um, stranger and stranger cases uh, show up at his door. Um, so, like I said before, Richard Lloyd Perry, who wrote Ghost of the um, Tsunami, you know, he tracks some of this work he did with, um, uh, uh, you know, the tsunami victims, uh, victims which started um, shortly after 2011. So, okay, so some of those occurrences um, were people started showing up who felt like they were possessed by some of the pe people, spirits of the people who had died. Um, uh, one resident, uh, Ami, uh, said that spirits would um, often take over her body uh, and uh, uh, Kaneda would uh, perform exorcisms. So I'm not sure exactly what a Buddhist exorcism is, but I do know that exorcisms are, I think, the most common, the, the only, no, sorry, exorcisms are the only common practice shared between all religions. So no matter what. Really? <laughs> yeah, I'm really sure about that. That's Each, whatever your religion is, it probably has some form of exorcism. Um, so he starts performing them. Again, you know, he talks about how this may be a little bit unorthodox for typical Buddhist teachings, but he doesn't give a shit. He's like, I'm here for these fucking people. This is real. This is happening. He's very much in the moment with them. And he's like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, uh, um, you know, you know, that is very Buddhist to care for the suffering of others. Right. And so where he found his, uh, you know, normal uh, uh, philosophies and context weren't use. They weren't helping. They weren't helping break through the grief, and they weren't alleviating the suffering. So he adapted, and it's very beautiful. Um, okay, so one of the people that came to him was um, uh, Takashi Ono, and Takashi Ono. That's not his real name, um, but he didn't want to be identified. Um, so he comes to him. He's he's a you know, regular guy described as sort of very nice, ordinary, um, uh, a man that lived in the same town, um, as, uh, Reverend Canada. So, um, the tsunami happened sort of miles away, but he came, he, the, the guy became, um, aware that it was a pretty, pretty bad a week or so after, um, the fact. And so he went to see and have a look, right? Like he, he hadn't really, taken in the sort of devastation, right? It didn't get as far as where, where he lived. So he, he goes down to see what, you know, what happened there. I, you know, a normal human response, right? Like something happens to you that close. And I, I imagine maybe it's a, a little bit more provincial up there. And so he's just like, hey, I'm going to like, you know, see for myself what's going on there. Um, so he drives down to the beach and is, and is shocked by what, what he sees. You know, he sees firsthand the devastation. Certainly, it's one thing to see something even on the television, um, but seeing a thing in person is always um, much more devastating. So he spends the day there just processing it, um, but he comes back that evening and he sits down, you know, for dinner with his family, has his tea, has a beer, and then something comes over him. And he starts rolling around on the ground. He starts making animal noises, um, barking, you know, grunting. Um, he runs out into the field and starts rolling around uh, in the mud, much to the horror of his his um, his mother and his wife. Um, and so the next morning he wakes up 
and he doesn't really know anything about this. I think his wife's like, I'm leaving you <laughs> or something like this, like pretty like. So he blacked out. He like blacks out. He doesn't know this has happened, but his wife's extremely upset. And she's like, you know, I'm out of here basically. Um, and so he freaks out like this keeps happening for the next three days. He says he starts talking in this sort of strange, strange, intermittently strange guttural way. Um, he threatens violence. He's, he's talking about dead people and his family. They're beside themselves. And they're basically, like I said, like his wife said, is at her wits end. She's like, you have to f get help. One of them brings up um, the priest. Um, and so he goes to um, Kaneda um, and Kaneda, you know, he recites some Buddhist sutras. Um, you know, I imagine, you know, much like you might see a, you know, Catholic or Christian priest and they would, you know, start doing the Lord's prayer and sort of fundamental prayers and songs and, you know, maybe even some specific teachings. So, so the Buddhist sutras are like, you know, Buddhism is in the same way as Christianity in that sense, but they're probably the closest analog, right? So, so he does these there and this actually drives the, the spirits out. Um, or regardless, this helps him process whatever he's going through and, um, he starts to feel better and the, the, you know, this experience stops. So, so these, these sound like, uh, evil spirits. Well, I guess, kind of, I mean, but, yeah. I mean, I don't know, like not, not the ghost of a departed person, but something. Well, in this case, right. Yeah. That, so there's more, but, um, right. But in this case, it, it sounds very like um, disturbing. But again, mm -hmm. it's like I don't know. I mean, it, you know, evil. I mean, it's like you know, it could it could be somebody angry, right? Angry. They don't know what's going on, you know, and they're uh, you know resisting. They're acting out. They're you know upset. Right. So I don't know. Maybe it is something like dark or something okay. like that. But I, I'm just. Well, I'm just thinking the animal, the animal, the animal noises and that like wild, crazy. I don't know. Violence. Maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. something was attracted to the tragedy mm -hmm. there and was hanging out. Maybe some type of negative energy. Who knows what mm -hmm. this guy was going through. That's but clearly what him. What's that? That's what I was thinking. Something attracted to all the. the Tragedy the negativity, yeah, yeah, right. And so he goes down there, and something starts clinging to him. That's certainly, you know, uh, um, you know, in the context of the story, in the realm of possibilities here. Um, so, so yeah, it could have been some sort of like negative energy or something entity um, following him home. Um, and Kaneda was able to um, chase him away with Buddha sutras. Uh, he did a lot of stuff too. Like I don't want to sound at least like I think some of these people he worked tireless, tirelessly with, singing, burning incense, talking to them, yelling at them to go away, <laughs> you know, like reciting sutras over and over again, praying. He, he did a lot. He was sort of tireless in his pursuit of how to help these people. And when one thing didn't work, he would change tactics. He would try another another thing. Right. And so what was sort of remarkable to me about him was how how very much 
in the moment he was with these people and how very unattached he was to how he helped them. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Um, okay. So, uh, another occurrence, another one, this, I think this one was in the, the show as well. Um, there was a, um, young woman who was brought to Canada's temple one night. Um, she was a nurse. Um, but she hadn't personally sort of suffered any loss from the tsunami, right? None of her family or anybody I think she knew closely at least. I'm sure everybody kind of knew somebody adjacently, but, um, she, you know, she hadn't had any personal sort of grief yet uh, several weeks after she had started feeling presences around her. Um, and at one point she says she actually felt something enter her. Um, and as a result, she became very distressed and, uh, you know, she, she was not acting like herself. Her family started getting very concerned. So again, they, um, they brought her one night when I think it was getting particularly bad, um, to Canada. Um, and so he responds in kind, you know, with basically an open-minded, uh, um, you know, concern for her. So he, I think in this case, um, he starts speaking directly to whatever's inside of her and just starts a dialogue with it, right? And ask, essentially asks it what it wants. Um, and so then the, the whatever that it was inside of her, this voice uh, that sounded very different from hers, um, started speaking, started talking to him and uh, spoke to them for around three hours. So he's sitting there having a full-blown conversation, a full-blown dialogue with this entity in a very detailed way. So in this... Was it a confirmed uh, town person or somebody that they identified? Well, the, it, who actually it, had been? Confirmed. I mean, it uh, said that it was the spirit of a young woman whose um, uh, mother had divorced and remarried and so had felt, you know, who had found herself sort of, you know, she sort of felt unloved uh, and unwanted by her new family. So she had run away, um, you know, working in, you know, nightclubs, bars, and I think she actually had been a um, sex worker. Um, so she became, you know, more sort of isolated and depressed. Um and like just kind of had a rough, rough time of her life. Right. And so, you know, she was sort of, you know, knocked around in the world, um, you know, and, and sort of had fallen into a bit of depravity. Um, and so she had actually, uh, unknown by anyone or her family, she had actually committed suicide. Um, and she said that since then, no one had lit, uh, even a stick of incense, uh, in her memory. Oh. And so, so she actually hadn't died in the, in the, um, you know, in the actual, uh, you know, tsunami, but was around, right? Like, so, you know, if, if we, you know, acknowledge the possibility that this place was now f teeming <laughs> with spirits right. that, that were very upset and unhappy. And then here's this woman that's now becoming essentially a medium for them. This woman who wants some relief too now seeks out this this um gate, gateway 
you know, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. having some sort of contact with the world. And so, um, uh, Kaneda asks her if she wants to be led into the light. And so, um, he takes the woman, he takes the woman into the temple's main hall, says prayers over her. And, um, by the time he finishes, uh, the spirit leaves and she, the, the woman, uh, Rumiko, um, she returns to her normal life. Um, but so, so in this case, you know, the spirit was happy to go into light, you know, like was, was happy to be guided there. I think ultimately, Mm -hmm. even though she she was upset originally, um, but for me, for Rumiko, um, she, the situation was not (laughs) over for her, uh, because she's this clearly is sensitive. And I feel like this, we see this in a lot of our stories, like, you know, when it's like when somebody starts channeling these things, it's like, you know, entities start lining up <laughs> to, to, to speak through her because they see that here's a, here's a way I can contact. I'm just, I'm, I'm assuming that I don't know what they see, but, but it that's does. What I would tend, assume too. That's what I would yeah. assume too. Right. Like yeah. the idea that people start becoming a conduit for spirits because they've, they've now channeled one. Now others find their way to them tends to be the story. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, three days later, um, she returns, Rumika returns to Canada and she has another spirit, uh, that's trying to get in inside of her. And so she's resisting. Um, but Canada, <laughs> I mean, counter to what I think <laughs> we would imagine, uh, somebody say to us, um, in the West, but Canada says, let it in. So she does, and now he's talking to a sailor who had died during the Second World War. So over the next several weeks, another 25 spirits, all of these killed in the tsunami, speak through the woman. And uh, another man who had committed suicide um, uh, comes through. He, He had committed suicide when he had learned both his daughters had died in the tsunami. Um, another one, um, you know, was worried that his wife, uh, uh, you know, another person who, a spirit who had died, um, was worried that her, his wife was going to kill herself. So he sort of, you know, seeks out Canada's help. Um, so then, you know, poor Ramika, (laughs) it's like, you know, really doing God's work here, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) Yeah, exhausting. She's kind of at the mercy of these spirits, but you know, as much as best she can, she's l- allowing this to happen. She's letting some of these in. Finally, eventually, the visit the visitation cease, um, and she uh, and her fiance get the fuck out of there. <laughs> like she's right. done her she's done her job, and she's like, well, I'm out. I'm curious to know what. Um... Was there any discussion about how many details were verified? You know, things that she couldn't have known uh, or, you know what I mean? Um, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. The the, the tone of this is very like, um, like I said, like Kaneda is like, he takes things as they come to him. Right. And so I don't think a lot of people immediately right out of the gate. Or at all. I think yeah. it's just like, 
let me prove if this is true or not. It, it wasn't like his business. His business mm-hmm. was to help these people who were clearly suffering. Mm-hmm. And he didn't question it in that way. He only right. questioned, I think, his ability. I, I'm channeling him now. I think he only questioned his ability to, to help them with their suffering. And so mm-hmm. I don't think there was any sort of, I don't know. There, there may have been, you know, they, there may have been an attempt to sort of verify some of these details or not, right? Like, it seemed to be that once they just want a lot of them just wanted to be heard. And once he heard them, they would move on. Right. So, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, Ramiko would have gotten out of this, like, you know, putting this on. But what I love about this story is none of them cared. Ramiko didn't care. Canada didn't care. It wasn't like they were like, hmm, is this scientifically possible? They were just like, this is what's happening and we're going to deal with it right? Because Mm -hmm. that's life, right? That's Mm -hmm. the truth of life. And so, you know, um, yeah. So, um, all in all, right, after these intense encounters, you know, that has a huge emotional tone, both on Ramika and Kaneda. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, this, this person is now, you know, this Buddhist priest is now like, pretty good <laughs> at dealing with people in their grief uh, uh, sur- surrounding events like this and, and more, right? And so in the process of um, all of this, uh, Canada and a fellow group of priests organize a, a mobile support group, a mobile event um, that they call um, Café de Monk or Café de Monku, um, which is a sort of bilingual play on words um it's a play on the japanese pronunciation of the english word monk um and monku means complaint so Kaneda um uh, says in a flyer quote we think it'll take a long time to get back to calm quiet ordinary life why don't you come and join us take a break and have a little moan the monks will the monks will listen to your complaint and have a monku of their own too and that is the story of Reverend Kaneda and the Shinomaki ghost sightings. Wow. That's, uh, it's not only fascinating, but it was just uh, very touching. Yeah, very touching. Stories. Very touching. I think when I watched it, I was like, definitely like, you know, emotional watching right. him, you know, just because of, you know, he's definitely, in, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I would say it describe him as sort of a special person that, you know, was clearly a devout Buddhist, but that wasn't, in a weird way, he really cleaved to, in my opinion, sort of some of the precepts of Buddhism, which is about the alleviation of suffering in the sentient beings <laughs> in the world around you and put mm-hmm. that before anything else. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was absolutely beautiful. And he was also very sort of humble, unassuming, again, didn't, you know, question why is this happening? Should this be happening? How do I do this? He just kept trying. And just the idea of directly engaging with these things and not seeing them as evil, not seeing them as wrong, but just seeing them as, you know, you know, people, bodiless people, people who were lost, Mm -hmm. suffering, confused, and just want a lot of them just wanted to be heard. Right. And there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah. 
I all I also I was thinking, you know, when you were talking about the cab drivers seeing these ghosts appear in their yeah. cars and then disappear yep. later. I mean, I feel like we could do an entire episode just on spirits appearing in cars. Oh my god. Because that's yes, let's do that. you hear those stories right, so right. often. And we've even we've touched on it in some of our like I think like first poopover, like some of our ghost yeah. story episodes. Right. Um and also the the phone calls to the fire stations. Right. I mean, that was interesting. Yeah. And I know we touched on um, phantom phone calls in yep. a past episode, too. But just like the idea that um, technology can actually be a conduit for ghosts, um, especially immediately after they've passed. It, it seems like, you know, you, you hear these stories a lot of phone calls and, and things like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like the, the ability to use sort of these electrical devices for communication, but also like right. using an emergency source, right? Or like some of these people are maybe calling because, you know, something's happening at that, that happened at that time, right? That's like mm-hmm. echoing. Mm-hmm. But with the cab drivers, you know, um, what what are we, what did we call, ro- like roads have a special meaning in, their connection to the spirit world, right? They're called, they're like interstitial places. They're called, mm. I think you brought up the word. What Do you know what I'm talking about? They're no. like, uh, there's like a word. <laughs> it's like transitional, trans, uh, something like that. But there's some cool word for, I can't remember what it is now. But, but just this idea that like certain places, certain um things and places in the physical world because of their function engender the ability for um, something to come through it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're more connected to the spirit world weirdly. So a road is because of their it's transient nature because it's a a place where things pass through Mm -hmm. that makes it, you know, we do, I think we talked about a bit in the highways episodes, but also things like doors, doorways, right. windows, right? Not just because they're places where reflections can happen, because they're these transitional places. Yeah, we did talk about that. I think we've talked about it also in the sense of like, um, you know, 3 a.m. is called the witching hour, and a lot of things tend to happen around 3 a.m. Uh, right. And that's kind of like, the transitional time between day and night or why do so often say when a loved one is passing away or you hear stories about this kind of a thing, people report seeing entities or, you know, their departed loved ones coming to get them like in the corner of a room or so often they'll see some kind of spiritual being or something in a corner of a room yes, and it's corners. kind of like where things converge. Yes. The word I was looking for is liminal. Liminal spaces. Yes. Relating to a transitional or initial stage of a process, occupying a position at or on both sides of a boundary or a threshold. Yes. So road being a liminal place and a beach being a liminal place. Mm-hmm. Right. So you hear you have this like, massive tragic event that happened 
in this liminal place, right? Like people saw ghosts on the beach. Obviously, it seems like, sorry, it seems obvious, like, well, yeah, you'd see them on the beach because fucking water came out of it. But it's like, no, 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 but not everybody down on the beach, right? Like, you know, probably only like a few people did, right? Like, yet that's where people are seeing people, right? Like some of these people, some of these ghosts certainly didn't die in cabs, but because it's like this liminal place, right? This mm-hmm. like a cab's coming up, it's and there's like all of a sudden a possibility there. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I'm mm-hmm. trying to like get into some like weird metaphysical stuff, but it's like, I don't know. I feel like there's something there. Right. It's, it's borderlands. It's that in, yeah. The borderlands is the in between kind the of in between. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The cab, the possibility of something a door in motion, opening, get something, in, something in, in motion, yeah. going somewhere and they all want to go home. Right. They're out wandering around. They don't know what's going on. Why am I here? What happened? Where are my friends? Where are my loved ones? It's dark. I don't know what's happening. A light comes down the road. The door opens and I get in. I want to go home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's an excellent place to stop too. Yeah. It's quite poetic. Um, Wow. Well, thanks, Seth. Yeah, yeah. This is a great episode. Thanks. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I'm glad. I'm glad we finally did this. So. Yeah, me too. Me too. And if you guys out there have any ideas for things you want us to cover, please uh, shoot us an email: shadowlandpodcast at gmail dot com. Follow us on Instagram. You can DM us your ideas. Also, if you're enjoying the show, there are only three of us here in Shadowland. In addition to all of you guys, which you know we we love you all. But please leave us a review. Send us a few nice words, and we really, really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also subscribe. Tell your friends about it if you like the show. It, it, it's helping us grow. And stay tuned. We're coming up on Spooktober, and we've yes. got a campfire special That's right. next time. Campfire's coming up, yep. All right, great. So I guess we did it. We did it. All right, so until next time. All right, talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Shadowland Podcast is produced by Seth Javlin and Christina Callard. Edited by Tim Kelly. Theme music by Tim Lincoln. Thanks, Tim. 